Thanks for listening to the Junior Ziggler podcast. If you are crazy enough to want more of his content, check out the link in the description of this podcast. That link can get you to his book, his socials, and another podcast. Thanks for hitting play. Here's Junior. A couple of weeks ago, Nicole and I, we had a, it's like a little Christmas dinner planned with some, some friends and, and their young kids. And uh, you think about it, especially if you're parents, you know this. Anytime you get families together with kids, it can be just straight, you know, chaos. But not this dinner. It was surprisingly very, very peaceful. They, they have very well-behaved kids. And so you think about it, we had six kids at, at one table with the adults. And us adults, we were able to talk very, very easily uh, throughout the whole dinner. And after dinner, our friends had mentioned to us, they said, you know, one of the reasons we wanted to have you over was, um, you guys have very good kids, and we would just love to get your thoughts on, on parenting. And that took me by surprise. It's like, first off, parents don't usually ask that because we're just too proud. We always want to think we know what we're doing. Um, but also, they had great kids, and so it's like, I'm not sure I can really add much. But I had this really, really good conversation after dinner about parenting and discipline and kids and, and all of that. And I love, I love what the wife had said to me. She said, I try to learn so much from my mom and my grandma as much as possible. Like I ask them questions all the time. In fact, they're the first people that I ask questions to. I think young parents are really quick to go on like YouTube or to listen to some sort of like child psychologist that has messed up kids, but they're going to teach everybody else how to, how to parent. And she said, I just want to honor my family by being the first to like go to, to my mom or to my grandma because that's just very honoring to them. Now, she has a very good family, but I, I love her heart, just the humility of that. And the proof is in their pudding. Like they have great kids they have, because of their approach to family. They've decided to stand on the shoulders of those who've gone before them. And she's right. The wife is right. When you have a healthy family, you should be hungry to learn from that, from them. And if you have a messed up family, which I know some of us in this room do, we should be hungry to learn from those around us. This is why God places us in community. And too often it's our pride that keeps us from standing on the shoulders of others. I remember like for about first maybe 10 years of ministry, I struggled to uh, work with my dad just because I thought, you know, I'm working with like your dad's kind of like I'm in his shadow. You know, it's like I'm a little pastor's kid tag along with daddy everywhere he goes. And I just had, I struggled to that personally. In fact, there were times where I was like, I think I'm going to go to a different church just because I want to get out of the, you know, the shadow of my, my father. Until my buddy had said to me, he said, you could see it like you're living in your dad's shadow or you could also see it like you're standing on his shoulders. I think the choice is up to you. Changed my whole perspective. And what I love about today's text is today's text is like shoulders that we can stand on. Like here we are, we're trying to navigate this world and, and sift through our culture. How do we live as a Christian community in a very dark and darkening world? And it's as if our church family from 2000 years ago says, here's what we did and it was awesome. We're gonna read it together. It's Acts chapter two. Acts chapter two is page 909 in the Bibles and the chairs. Really encourage you to grab a Bible because we're not gonna show all the verses up here on the screen. Even if... I don't know, Bible's new to you or Bible isn't your thing. I just encourage you to grab the Bible, crack it open, give it a shot. We won't tell anybody. We promise it'll be between us. Acts chapter two. Give you a little bit of a heads up here. Um, it's about three hours ago. So part of my job is I prepare messages and then I help, um, especially the younger preachers on staff at other locations, just as far as like, hey, here's what we're going to cover and, and all of this. And, and I, I talk it through them, uh, through everything with them. I got a call about three hours ago from one of the younger guys. He goes, Junior, this sermon's pretty dry, man. I was like, really? He's like, yeah, I don't know. It's just, I, I'm, having, I'm having a hard time. It just feels so dry. 
and so, you know, kind of talked through just uh, some things with him. But um, he actually just got back from Passion, which is a big conference, about 60,000 people in Atlanta, 60,000 Christians that were you know, worshiping together and hearing, like, teaching from the best speakers in the world. And so he's, like, you know, all hopped up. And then to get this, he's like, oh, my goodness. But we just had a conversation that sometimes there's really fun text. You can get really excited. It's almost like candy. And it's just, like, really fun. And you can get really excited about it. And then there's times where it's like, depending on the text, but also depending on where God's leading, is like, hey, we're going to have a little bit more history here. And that's actually today. We're, there's going to be a lot more history here, a little bit of archaeology in, in today's uh, lesson. I don't know if you're into history or not, but you're going to be in this text. Plus, it's too cold. Like, it, it's cold outside to do anything else. So you're stuck with me in here. So just kind of like, cuddle up, get ready. We're going to the text, and it'll be a good time. Hopefully, it won't be too dry. And if it is, it's still scripture, and we can learn from it. So let me pray, and we'll jump in. God, we do thank you that your word is never dry. It really isn't, Father. We thank you that your word is life-changing, living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Father, I ask that we all submit ourselves right now to your word, that we come before you humbly, ready for what you have for us today. Whether it's something major or whether it's a reminder. And Father, whatever you want. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as the lens of Scripture zooms into Acts chapter 2, the spring mountain air sweeps over the limestone walls of Jerusalem. Left out laundry in people's yard, flaps in the breeze, reminding its owners to grab a cloak today. It's an expected draft this time of year, yet nobody realizes the howl of the wind right now is nothing compared to what's coming later on today. See, for most in town, it's a typical day in the capital city of Israel. But for a small group of foreigners, they've, they wonder if today might be the day. They're gathered up. For the last 10 days, they've just been waiting. For what? They're, they're really not quite sure. See, 40 days ago, their rabbi just rose from the dead down the street. And this city has been buzzing. Excitement has been at fever pitch. People have been talking about it. Like the crucified, they saw a man who was crucified. And then later they saw him walking down a road. Like he had to be God. But what does this mean? And yet a month goes by. And the chatter is lessening. And the excitement is cooling. And for those 120 believers, obeying Jesus' words of just wait is starting to hurt. And this is where Luke brings us into Acts chapter 2. Verse 1 says, when the day of Pentecost arrived. Now, uh, real quick, we talked a lot about this la uh, last April. In fact, we went through this chapter last April. And so I don't want to re-unpack all of that. If you missed that message that we did on Acts chapter 2 last April, go on the Bridge app. It's a series called After Effects, What Happened After Easter. We spent a whole weekend talking about the Holy Spirit, how God is in us, how we need the Holy Spirit. He guides us. He convicts us. He empowers us to be more like Jesus. Like everything in this chapter that we're going to read is the Holy Spirit moving and leading. And amazing things will happen. And part of me just wants to re-preach that message from a few months ago. You know, because it'd be a lot easier on me. But instead of being lazy, we're just going to come at this chapter from a little bit of a different angle. But again, I would say, if you missed that message, go on the app, After Effects, and, and look up um, Pentecost. But let, let's talk a little bit about um, Pentecost here. In fact, this, this word might even look familiar to you. You might have some friends who call themselves Pentecostals because that's a, um, that's a denomination. But what is, what is Pentecost? Well, in Scripture, especially here in this context in Acts chapter 2, verse 1, 
Pentecost was a Jewish festival and Pentecost literally means 50 days, a festival of 50 days, meaning 50 days from Passover. Sometimes it's called the the festival of weeks. It's been seven weeks since Passover, Uh, but this is when God's people would get together and they would celebrate God giving the law. And it's a remarkable story in the Old Testament. We're not going to turn there um, right now, but as, as God's, and this is in, in Exodus, but God's people are camped out. And you might even know the story. Even if church isn't your thing, you might have heard the story when you were a little kid. But God's people are camped out at the base of a mountain. And the fire of God consumes the very top of the mountain. Old Moses hikes up the mountain into the fire. And then weeks later, he comes out of the fire with the Ten Commandments, with God's commandments. And so every year, After that, 50 days after Passover, the Jewish people would get together and they would celebrate this event. When God established our culture, the fire on the mountain, God gave the law to Moses. And so Jewish people from all over are making their trip to Jerusalem to participate in this big festival, the the, the 50-day festival. And they, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. They, meaning Jesus' OG group. 120 of them together in one place. Now, personally, when I read scripture and I read something like this, I, I look at one place and like, I, well, I want to know like what this one place is. Where are they all gathered? You know, are they at a house? Is it like a public area? Are they camping out? I mean, Jesus liked to camp out. Like it'd be really cool to know where they were gathered because what's about to happen will be one of the biggest events in history ever. So it'd be kind of cool to know like where this all went down. Now, Luke doesn't tell us specifically but there are two interesting places that this one place might be. And so I just kind of want to do a little bit of investigation on that for, for just a second. Many people believe that this one place right here is Solomon's portico or Solomon's porch. And we're going to actually be up on Solomon's porch later on in Acts. Um, more happens here. But this is where they believe that the 120 people of Jesus's followers are gathered. Solomon's porch was right near the temple on the Temple Mount. And it was a shelter for a lot of out-of-towners. They could come, if, you know, if they're coming to the temple to make a pilgrimage, they could stay in this shelter when they were there in Jerusalem. Now, most of Jesus's followers, that 120 people, most of Jesus's followers at this point, they're from out of town. They're from up north in Galilee. But they were at the temple each day. And so it just kind of makes sense that this is where they are gathered. On top of that, in a little bit, we're going to see a huge crowd comes and gathers. And so it seems like this plaza could have held that large crowd. So a lot of people believe this one place where everyone's gathered is on Solomon's porch. But to be fair, some people think differently. And they have a very interesting take. Some believe that this place right here, that they're all gathered, was in a building just below the Temple Mount in the upper room. Now, you remember like the upper room when Jesus had his, in his last supper like all the, with all the disciples, they were, they were in the upper room. That room likely became used a lot by the disciples. They kind of saw it as like their Jerusalem headquarters, so to speak. And there's a very, very interesting building in Jerusalem today that they might have found what they believe might be the upper room. Currently, um, it's a, this synagogue right here. The church is next to it. But this has been a synagogue for a, a very long time. This is more of a, a recent church. Uh, but this synagogue right here is very interesting in that some archaeologists believe that it may have been the very first church building in Jerusalem. So synagogues uh, back then, as, as, well as, during, as well as today, um, they face, the, the synagogue faces the, the Temple Mount. And so this synagogue today faces uh, the, the Temple Mount. It, it's built correct. But here's where things get interesting. The basement of the synagogue doesn't. The early 
first century foundations of this synagogue face a very different location. Instead of facing the temple, the foundations and the basement, again, first century basement, they face where, G, where many believe that Jesus rose from the dead. So it faces the sepulcher, the holy sepulcher. Now there can and there is debate on this, of course. Um, and, and it could be that this basement faces this way for, for different reasons. But some archaeologists speculate that this synagogue used to be the upper room. And eventually this upper room was used a lot by the disciples. Eventually they tore down the house and they built a church, the, the early church there, the very first church. And since they were Jewish, they were accustomed to facing their buildings certain directions and they decided to face it toward the empty tomb. Again, that's speculation, but it's an interesting conversation. And interestingly enough, it's also becoming more than speculation because recently some archaeological finds in the, around the synagogue area have uncovered pottery with, um, with this symbol right here. Now, I actually have this symbol tattooed on my hand, and some of you who have gone to um, Jerusalem with me, you've gotten this, this symbol tattooed um, as well. I know we're in like this weird, it's not a cult, I promise, but we just have a lot of fun in Jerusalem. But it's the very first Christian symbol that we know of. It's the temple menorah, which is a very big deal. And then it's also tied into a, a fish, which is Jesus made us fishers of men. So it's likely that this synagogue... Um, at, the, at the very least, had a Christian community around it. And some people believe that in Acts chapter 2, this is where the 120 of them are gathered. Now, personally, uh, not that I'm a learned scholar, but my opinion, uh, personally, I believe that this happened, what, what's about to take place happened on Solomon's porch on the Temple Mount. Mainly because it'd be so hard to have 120 people gather in the first century house. It still would have been a house at that point. They wouldn't have made it into a church yet. It's still just a house. So to house 120 people, that's a lot too. Also, a, a crowd is coming to gather there. It just makes a lot more sense that it's up on the Temple Mount. But whether it's on Solomon's porch or whether it's in the upper room, Luke doesn't say because the event is far more important than the specific location. So enter Holy Spirit, verse two, if you have your Bibles in front of you, it says, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house. Now that's, I know that's a little bit confusing because we just talked about house, but if you look at the original language, Solomon's porch could also fit into there. It's, it's more of like structure. Um, filled the entire house that they were sitting. What's starting to happen here in verse two, um, Christians can get really, really amped about. And I get it because what's, what's, what's happening here is so cool. And we look, read this is like, man, I kind of want to experience this, right? Like the, the, the mighty rush of the Holy Spirit. Something to keep in mind as we read this, because we can easily read this and kind of get into more of a, a fantasy realm if we read it with the long, wrong lens. Something to keep in mind as we read through this text. What's about to happen is abnormal. This is not a new normal. This is abnormal. And, this, and that's the point. Because you remember, these 120 people, they've been waiting for 10 days. They've been waiting for, and, and they don't know exactly what they're waiting for. They don't know when the wait is over. So there must be something big to tell them that the wait is over. So the Holy Spirit is going to do something big, a huge rush of, of supernatural to send a message. Here's what you're waiting for. No question about it. I'm here. Time to go for it. It's go time. Also to keep in mind, Sometimes Christians can read Acts chapter two. We can read this chapter and we can think, this is so awesome. We've got to like recreate this somehow. That's not the point. As believers, we are to recreate the end of chapter two. And we're going to get there in a little bit. The beginning of chapter two, very fun and exciting. This is a sign that is up to God. This is, this is God saying, hey, the wait is over. The Holy Spirit is here. We're not responsible for recreating the first part of the chapter. We're responsible for recreating the end of the chapter, which again, we're going to get to. 
Uh, we're still in the beginning though. Verse three, it says, and divided tongues of fi- as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. What's up? We've talked about this before, but this is worth mentioning. What is up with the tongues or the licks of fire that appear over their heads? I remember as a kid hearing this story when I was a kid, I grew up in church and my Sunday school teacher had flannel graph. I don't know if you know what flannel graph is, but um, a lot of times church kids will know what flannel graph is. It's like this green like board with like these uh, flannel, I guess, little characters that you stick up there and you can kind of tell stories with, with a little flannel graph, um, you know, board. And as a kid, I remember sitting there. I remember this specifically, like sitting there, you know, in my little chair and listening to my teacher with the disciples and talking about all this. I'm very confused. And then she puts fire over the disciples' heads. And I, I was very confused at that point. So I asked my, Sunday, my very precious Sunday school teacher, I said, hey, well, what's up with the fire? And she's like, well, there's a very special sign. And I was like, yeah, but why fire? I was a very annoying kid in growing up. But there's something so cool. Like the answer to that question is, is, is very, very cool. There's something really cool going on. If you write in your Bibles, which might be a good habit to start this year, but if you write in your Bibles, draw an arrow from verse three to verse one. Because verse three and verse one of Acts chapter two, there is a connection there. It's a very beautiful connection. When you connect verse three to verse one, it opens up the whole chapter. What is Jerusalem celebrating? They're celebrating Pentecost when God consumed the top of the mountain of fire. And from that point on, people likened fire to like the presence of God. And so God is sending a message, a new message here. Okay, you all here celebrating when God is on the mountain, fire's on the mountain, but the fire has left the mountain. The fire is now in you. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, God is no longer just on the mountain or just in the Holy of Holies. That, that, that curtain was ripped. God is now in you. The Holy Spirit indwells his people. That's what these licks of fire rep- represent here in verse 3. And of course, this catches everybody's attention. Here we are at this festival celebrating God's consuming fire on the mountain. But over there, fire is on the people and God is in them. And to prove it, if you look at verse four, they're speaking in different languages. These Northern Israelis who had a reputation for being uneducated, they said y'all a lot, are speaking, (laughs) sorry, my brother says y'all, are speaking, I just want to get that email, are speaking Greek, These Northern Israelis are speaking Greek. They're speaking Egyptian. They're speaking Phoenician. All of these different languages are gathering to celebrate when God's fire is on the mountain. But yet there's a group of people over here that are speaking their language who are celebrating that God is in them. See, this isn't just some like weird occurrence. Also, this isn't just some like super high emotional experience that we're supposed to feel. There's a very deep, deep meaning and beauty to God's strategy here in Acts chapter 2. And it's right here that God's story gets into different languages. See, these people who are hearing their their own language will leave the mountain. They will take God's message in their own language back to their hometowns and things will start brewing around the empire. These people watching what's happening right here will set the stage for the future of Acts, for all of the missionary journeys that are coming up. I mean, God is so thoughtful. God is so strategic. God is so intentional. And this is just a small peek into his mind. And it's incredible, isn't it? Uh, Verse 14, verse 14, Peter stands up in the midst of the crowd and he's going to preach. I can't help but think, like knowing Peter, 
in his personality. He's been chopping at the bit for this, you know? It's been like, it's been seven weeks, it's like seven weeks ago, exactly, when Peter denied Jesus in these very streets. And he hid from many of these people. And for days he swam in guilt over that until Jesus pursued him and recalled him. And since then, you know, Peter, he's been like a racehorse in the gate, just ready to go, just waiting for a second shot at this. But Jesus told him to wait. Oh, but now's the time. And Peter stands up and he preaches in the very streets to the very faces that he denied Jesus to. Man, to have been there. To just have been there. To see the resolute look on his face as he steps up. To hear for the very first time an imperfect man who is filled with God share the message of Jesus in clarity and in confidence. It would have made the hair stand up on the back of your neck. In verse 37, at the end of his message, it says, when they heard, when they heard this, this the story of Jesus, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and to the rest of the disciples, brothers, what should we do? Verse 38, it says, and Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And then, and then he says, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy. So this whole fire over your head, that, that, it's the Holy Spirit. But look at the beginning of more of, of verse 38, really in the middle. Repent and be baptized. That's it. He says, Jesus did the work. The sacrifice was made on the cross down the street. So there's no class that you have to take here. There's no like checklist of works that you gotta you know, check off. Jesus did it all. And so Peter says, repent which is a really churchy word. I don't know, t- t- we tend to think like we hear repent. We tend to think of like, you know, the street preachers holding the cardboard signs and, and all of that. Th- that's not Peter here. Peter's using a very regular word in their language. The original word that he uses in Greek is metanoeo, which just means to turn. Just turn. Turn from you and get baptized. Turn to God. Turn away from yourself. Turn away from your agenda. Turn away from your way. Turn away from your attitude. Turn to God. And then Peter said, then show that you've turned by getting baptized. Bury yourself in water like Jesus was buried in the ground and then come out a new person. Verse 41, it says, so those who received his word were baptized. They were added to that day about 3,000 souls. Think about that. In one, in one single day, 3,000. That's like the size of our church. Added in one day. Now, uh, skeptics have looked at this verse, verse 41, and they've They've refused to accept this as part of history, mainly because now how do you baptize 3,000 people in one day? I guess a church is one of my favorite weekends of the, of the year. Uh, we, we do baptism weekend and we will baptize, I don't know, 150 people. And it, it takes a while. Sometimes our services, if you've ever been to one of those services, they go for a while. It's, it's, a, it's a blast. That's 150. We're talking 3,000 in one day. And there's no river up on the Temple Mount. There's no river up there. So what happened? There's no way. Well, recently, uh, archaeologists have uncovered hundreds of baptismals all around the Temple Mount. They're actually still finding water tanks today. Uh, I was in Israel about two years ago, actually, with, uh, with Jordan and my dad. And we were just hanging out around the Temple Mount, just kind of exploring on our own. And we heard a few archaeologists yell, another mikvah, another mikvah, meaning that they found another baptismal tank. Like they're just finding these things all over the Temple Mount. See, before pilgrims would enter onto the Temple Mount to, to worship, they would often dunk themselves. They, they called that mikvah, to cleanse themselves before going on to a, a holy area. And so there's hundreds of these all around the Mount. So you, again, you imagine this. Peter preaches his message. 120 original followers, they all get to work. 
They're dunking face after face after face. New believer after new believer after new believer. I mean, you imagine the excitement that day, the cheering, the celebration, the tears, like what a day. But it didn't stop there. Verse 41. This is, and they devoted, meaning the church, and now there's 3,000. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. So it's just, then they do church. Then they get together and they humbly sat under teaching. Jesus' great commission says, teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. That's what Jesus asked us to do. Teach them to obey. Verse 41, they're doing just that. Hey, what does it look like to, ha- to follow Jesus with your marriage? What does it look like to follow Jesus at work? What does it look like to parent in a godly way? What does it look like to live holy? What does it look like to fight temptation? What does it look like to love your neighbor? They just, they sat under very practical teaching and they lived in community. This is fellowship. They just did life together. They ate meals together. They talked about parenting, talked about marriage. They talked about purity together. And they prayed and they welcomed God into their midst. Verse 43, and awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Look at that. Not everybody's doing that. Just through the apostles, the the, the disciples. So that, that activity that the Holy Spirit started, still going on. And then verse 44, this is interesting. Verse 44, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. Mega church was together. This does not mean that they agreed on everything. This does not mean that they are the same. They had different backgrounds. They had different perspectives. They had different opinions. And that was just fine. This, church, this verse right here doesn't mean that this whole church agreed on everything. That would be a cult. It's not a cult. It means that they were tied together. Oh, they had different opinions. But Jesus, they had Jesus in common and that was enough for them. To them, Jesus meant more than their culture. To them, Jesus meant more than their skin color. To them, Jesus meant more than their politics. To them, Jesus meant more than their opinions. Jesus was enough. To live in community means you have to sacrifice minor opinions. And they were happy to do so. The quickest way to break up a community is to be opinionated about dumb stuff get all legalistic and showy with rules. It, it, it kills churches, it kills friendships, it kills families, it kills small groups, it kills mental health. I don't know how many times, so my kids, we're all, the Ziegler's are a work in progress, okay? So this weekend, I feel like I've been telling my girls to just stop fighting more than normal. And before I, actually, as I was studying for this message today, I, I told them, I was like, guys, it's not a big deal. What you're arguing about right now is not a big deal. Stop making everything into a big deal. And then I started to smile because like, how many times does God have to say that to us? It's not a big deal. Like that should be one of the major things we tell ourselves. It's not a big deal. If you want to have a good community, if you want to have a good marriage, if you want to have good friendships, you have to say that a lot. It's not a big deal. You know how many times Jordan bugs me? And I just have to say it's not a big deal. And you know how many times I bug Jordan? And he just says, it's not a big deal. We have to do that with each other. Hey, that's not a big deal. That's a very minor thing. Let's stop making that into a major thing. That's a minor thing. Stop getting so emotional and so energetic about that. That's not a major thing. This group majored on the major opinions. Jesus is God. That is major. The minor opinions were put into perspective and they just got good at saying, that's not a big deal. So let's stop making it into big deals. 
And I wonder if some of us are struggling right now, struggling with our relationship with God, struggling to find community, struggling with church, struggling with family, because we struggle with this. It's not a big deal. It's so easy to get amped up and all excited about dumb little stuff. You can get excited, but you also have to remember at the end of the day, it's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. It is about Jesus and his church, what God is doing with his church. This is about people going to hell. Nothing is bigger than that. And the early church modeled it perfectly. We're gonna major on the majors. We're gonna love our brother more than we love our views. And we're gonna love our church more than we love our opinions. And it's beautiful. Verse 45, they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing their proceeds to all as any had need. Because when you love somebody, you, you notice their needs. I feel like, and I'm wrong, but I feel like I argue with my wife quite a bit because she's such a big need anticipator and it drives me nuts sometimes. But she's always anticipating needs around, around her and then looking to fill them. So she's constantly making meals for people. And what bothers me is she'll like notice, hey, that's an old person down the street. Can you go shovel their driveway? And that's when I, you know, it's like, oh, you, you found the need, you do it. But then I do it. But it's just always on her radar. What, what are the needs around and, and looking to fill those needs? And it's a beautiful part of her. I love that part of her, even though it drives me nuts. I love that part of her. This was the early church and it's beautiful. And I'll tell you, that I'll, I'll look, I look at this, I look at verse 45 and I see so many in our church. Like we have such a generous church. Again, the past months, we've seen people give cars in our church to other people in our church. Like, hey, you need to, we'll give you a car. We see people paying for other people's education, just, just helping them. Like it's the beauty of the church. Nothing else is like it. Actually, just before getting up on stage, I, uh, Ralph Larson, he's one of our elders. Um, and he hasn't been doing great health-wise, but he's in a rehab, uh, rehabilitation center just like two blocks away. And um, I frequently have been just texting with him and I've always asked him, like, what can I do for you, Ralph? What can I do for you? And so this morning he had texted me, hey, okay, there's something I need. I haven't been able to get a haircut since the night I went into the hospital. Can you find like somebody to cut my hair? I was like, all right. So I just started texting all the people that I know cut hair in the church. And now we have like, we have a lady going over to the rehabilitation center this weekend to go cut his hair. Like you don't find that many places. This is the beauty of the church. And this is what the early church is focusing on. The early church is not focusing on their opinions and what they want, what they see the church and how they see the world. And no, no, this is about Jesus Christ, loving our community, loving our brothers and sisters. And when something takes precedent over that, then we get frustrated. And this is many Christians today. Verse 46, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. I love verse 47, praising God and having, look at this, favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved, their humility, their generosity, their sense of community, it made the city better. One of the things on our heart at the bridge is that if the bridge were to disappear tomorrow, we'd want the communities all around the bridge to miss it. We really like those people. And that was Jerusalem. Jerusalem just loved the church. Even, though, even those who weren't a part of it just loved the church. And Luke writes, their attendance just rose. It started in Jerusalem. And soon the world will taste it. But Acts chapter 2. In many ways, the church is still trying to get back to our roots, back to our roots, the Acts chapter two church. 
The beginning is exciting, right? Many churches, we try to recreate that, as I said. Exciting, emotional flurry. But our callings to recreate the end of that chapter, having all things in common, generosity, praising God, majoring on the majors, favor with the people. A few lessons from the text. Number one, lessons from our family to really stand on the shoulders of those who've gone before us. Aim for the bees. This is what they're teaching us in Acts chapter two. Aim for the bees. And here's what I mean by that. It's, it's an, incredible, an incredible moment. Thousands watching Peter speak in the Temple Mount. And what Peter's done, the thousands say to him, hey, we're in. What should we do? And the answer is simple. Oh, it's been complicated by churches for millennia. Even today, there's movements attempting to hijack the church's mission. Movements that are very liberal and movements that are ultra conservative. Like nobody's immune. We've often tried to really hijack the the mission of the church, but the early church kept it simple. Here is the mission of the church. Don't muddy it up. It's belief in baptism. This is what Peter said. That's what we're about. This is where we're aimed. And this is what we will preach until Jesus comes back and says to stop. This is what unites us. This is what drives us. And this is what defines our community. We aim for the bees. Now, having said that, belief. I want to talk about this for just a second. Because belief here does not mean believe in the existence of. All right, Peter doesn't tell the crowd, hey, just believe in the existence of God. Like scripture says that even the demons believe in God. Believing in the existence of God isn't anything. That's demon level faith. Like when Jesus said to people, hey, believe in me. Jesus wasn't saying, believe, in me, believe I exist. I mean, he's standing right there. Jesus uses the word pistuo, and this is important. Pistuo means to rely on, to put confidence in, to put trust in, to be all in. It's a belief that translate to, translates to action. It's a belief that guides your steps, that guides your life. Hell will be populated with people who believe in the existence of God. The kingdom of God is populated by those who put their trust in God enough to surrender their life, their way, their attitude, their opinions. They're not perfect, but a belief is action. Now that action doesn't give us salvation. It's just evidence of our salvation. And that's what the early church is about. The grand mission of the church is simple. Oh, we do food pantries. We love them. We fix vehicles for struggling families. We give haircuts. We have 12-step programs. We do Bible studies. We send resources to developing countries. All that is good. But the forefront mission, the, the unifying force is this right here. And when we complicate this, when we add to this, when we politicize this, when we syncretize this, the church gets frustrated because the God-given mission has been compromised. The early church kept it simple and we would do well to do the same. Number two, Second lesson from our family is a sign of change is sharing. It's a little bit like, how do you know when somebody eats clean organic? Don't worry, they'll tell you. Right? How do you know that somebody's on the keto diet? Again, they're just going to tell you. You don't have to ask. Why? Well, a few different reasons for that. But a big part of it is when something or someone changes your life, you naturally will talk about it. Whether it's a gym or a baby or a diet or a book or a pot. And that's fine. You naturally talk about what changes you. And, and you see that with the early church here. They shared their story. This is what Peter does. Peter, who weeks ago was running around like a scared puppy throughout Jerusalem, now stands in a crowd and shares the greatest story ever told because the greatest story ever told changed Peter. A major sign that you have God in you changing you is you talk about him. 
you think about that? Do your coworkers know that you're a follower of Jesus? Do your neighbors, do your friends, do they know that Jesus has changed you? And I'm not saying like, do you do it in like a weird salesman-y, cheesy, annoying way, but you just naturally share your story, what Jesus has done for you. Because when something changes you, it's a natural topic of conversation and it's not weird. But they didn't just share their story. Verse 45, they share their stuff. Because when your heart is gripped, giving just happens. It's like that Sarah McLaughlin commercial with the puppies. You ever see that? The dogs. And the arms up, angel. Right? You're showing all like the pictures of the dogs in cages, like sad faces. And people are flooded that. It's, it's actually kind of funny. Look at this. How much, charity that, how much money that charity got. Because we just can't stand to see sad dogs. And it just somehow gripped our heart. We've all experienced that, though. It's like the last time I went to... Um, I was walking with my girls, uh, I have three daughters. We were walking through uh, the mall, and it was dangerous. There's Claire's on the corner. And they, they wanted to go in. It's a really bad idea. But we went in, and just like watching them, you know, shop around and look at, a, you know, earrings and purses and, and their little hair ties. And immediately I just thought, of like, oh, my goodness, like they're becoming little women. This sucks. And, and they left with stuff that day that they didn't need because my heart was, was gripped. It's like, man, they're going to be a little mama soon. And just, it tugged at my heart. It, it's what's going on here. A sign of a healthy church is generosity, which is why I love this church. I mean, last year, our giving for beyond, we, we, twice as much. We had stopped. We said, keep half of what you committed. Right now, in a time when churches are struggling and the market is unstable, but this community just gives. I think of those who have donated cars in the, in the last um, few months that are now being driven by other families in our church, just sharing. Think of many of you who showed up in our offices just before Christmas with just piles of gift cards saying, whoever in our church just needs presents, here, here's a bunch of gift cards. Like We never asked for that, but just, just piles on, on desks waiting to be given to, to people during the, the, the Christmas time because the heart of our community is gripped by Jesus. And we just can't help ourselves. Third lesson, number three, healthy things grow. Healthy things grow. We see this twice at the end of chapter two. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So in humility, this church sat under teaching, not to critique, but to grow. This is what I talk about with our, our younger um, teachers all the time. As, as I say, like there's two types of people who sit in church and we've been guilty of being both. So you can't be mad at one of the groups. And, and this is anywhere you go. Is there's two different types of people when they sit under teaching, whether it's a conference, church, whatever. Is there's the critics and there's those who just have the humility to, okay, I, I want to take what I can here. And they were, they were the second group. I just want to take what I can. And they ate it up. Then verse 47, the Lord added to their number 3,000. And there's 3,500, there's 4,000. I mean, a little bit, we're going to get to 5,000 men. So we're at least 10,000 pretty soon here. It's become a little bit, nor and maybe you've heard this if you've been in like Christian circles, um, but it's become normative in some church circles to demonize talking about numbers. So I hear people say like, well, numbers aren't everything. It's like, nobody's saying that. Like you're just building straw man argument. Like nobody's saying that. Or, you know, numbers don't matter. I don't know. Like God did name a book of the Bible numbers. Also, <laughs> the early church is counting numbers. Because each number is a soul and souls matter. We're talking about heaven and hell. Numbers matter. It's not everything, but nobody's saying it's everything. But they matter because they matter a great deal to God. We've had people say, you know, like, well, the bridge, they're just, they just want to be big church. And when they've said that to me, I'm always like, yeah, 
Absolutely. Got that right. Because we're attacking the gates of hell. And that's just what happens. That's what literally attacking the gates of hell does. One person that was on their way to hell, now they're part of God's community. I'll do that every freaking day. We'll do that over and over and over and over. And we're going to count every single one because heaven does and heaven parties about it. Sure, we'll hit periods of time where growth is less and harder and there's seasons of sifting, absolutely. And just because one church is bigger than the other doesn't make it better by any means. Some areas are more primed for numeric growth than others. But here in Acts chapter two, we see growth in two areas. Application of Jesus's teaching and numeric growth. And both of those things matter to the early church. The world has never seen anything like it before. Our family history should be one that makes us really proud. And should also, we should feel a heavy weight from it because the sacrifice that they pumped into this church and now the baton's been handed to us to keep it going, to stay focused. That's why we're here. Think of it a little bit like, uh, so this is Madison. She's, um, she's my oldest. She's 10 years old. She's going on 85 years old. <laughs> she's an old lady at heart and I love it. Uh, she hates change she's going to give her pastor a run for money one day. Just hates any sort of change. And uh, she loves antiques, as you can see. So her favorite, one of her favorite shows is, and I usually watch it every Sunday afternoon with her, is American Pickers. And if you've seen that, it's like a, kind of an older show, American Pickers. And so um, last year, I took her to Iowa to visit the antique warehouse of American Pickers. And, and she dreams of having an antique store one day. This is like, this is her, she's 10. She dreams of owning an antique store, always wanting to visit antique shops. And I, I also enjoy going to antique stores too. So it's something that we, we enjoy together. So last summer, um, we were in Wisconsin, where my wife grew up in Mount Hoare, Wisconsin. It's a small little antiquing and snowboarding town, which is a very odd mixture, but it makes a really fun place. And uh, Madison always asked to go to see the antique stores. And so, um, and we become friends with one of the owners over time. So we went into this antique store and it's just so fun to follow her around. She peruses for hours and it's just a blast to see her imagination light up. She'll be like, dad, imagine a family using this in their kitchen in the twenties. I wonder if a little girl used it (laughs) or, you know, she found out, she found something that she loved, which is this oil lamp right here. She couldn't stop staring at this oil lamp. She's like, I wonder if a little girl used it to read at night when she, you know, a long time ago. And I looked at the price tag. It was like 10 bucks. I was like, all right, you can, you can have that. I will buy that one. And you would have thought I would purchase like the Mona Lisa for her. Like she just freaked out and she couldn't believe she owned it. So she made a special case for this lamp. She wrapped it in cloth and then puts it in this little box that she made for it. And if little kids, like we have a family, like little kids coming over, she will take her box out of her room and hide it in the attic so that it does not get broken. And periodically I'll see her. She'll take out the, the, you know, the lamp and just kind of stare at it. And I can see her imagination going and I love it. It reminds me of what Jesus said in Mark 10. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child, not going to enter it. Now, primarily, Jesus is talking about humility and dependence of a child. But two, just the awe of the preciousness of what we receive. Do you realize that we're in the family of God? Just like, let that sink in. We're in the family of the most high, the creator of the universe. We're in his family. Like that's a stunning reality. And forget an old lamp. We're given something far more precious. We've been given new life. We've been given a mission. 
We've been given the church, the body of Christ, the lamp of the world. Are you living with that childlike awe? Do you see his church the way he sees it? Not sure, imperfect, whatever. Not without fault, of course, but a beautiful community with rich history. A baton worth carrying. A movement that is fueled by the thousands who have gone before us. So much blood has been invested into this. Have you joined in the collective sacrifice? Are you faithfully carrying that baton? Are you living on mission? Simple mission. Loving his family. Or do you struggle with what I can struggle with sometimes? It's complicating the mission, turning into a critic. This is a community that Jesus himself said he's coming back for. The bride of Christ. He just can't keep his eye off the church. Are you bought in? And so we ask ourselves, so what? As we always do, coming out of God's word. All right, so what? So much here. What does God have for you this week? Question, we're going to go into a time of just corporate reflections. We always do. We always need the space and time to just make some, maybe some confessions. Allow God to set our heart right, our mind right. Maybe some commitments. But the question I really want to, to guide this time is, is what next step is God calling you to? We see a lot going on here in Acts chapter 2. What step is it that God is calling you to? For some of us, maybe it's like, you know, I started coming to church on New Year's, and it's fantastic. We're glad that you're here. But you're like, I, this belief thing, more than the existence of, but really stepping out and turning from my way and turning to God, I, I've not yet done that. Maybe that's your next step. And I pray you do that right now where you're sitting. It just looks like reaching out to God. Maybe it's baptism. You may come in, but you haven't yet said, okay, I'm, I'm in, and I'm, I'm, getting, I'm getting baptized. Maybe for some of us, it's, I got to be more outspoken about my faith. got to share my story, share my stuff. What is that next step that God is calling me to? Thanks again for listening. Again, for more content, just scroll down to the podcast description and follow the link. Before we call it, would you be kind enough to share this podcast? It goes a long way. Blessings on you today. See you next time.